Hello fellow travelers and welcome to Adventures in Security, episode 45 for March 4th, 2007. I'm your host, Tom Olzak. You can find the information covered in our episodes at adventuresinsecurity.com on the podcast page. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear or about topics you'd like me to talk about, please send email to podcasts at adventuresinsecurity.com. In this episode, we have two feature topics, kernel malware and data protection. The featured material is taken from my weekly contributions to techrepublic.com, a source of valuable information for all technology professionals. But first, commentary on the news. In a recent eWeek article, Lisa Voss describes a situation at Black Hat that should give all security professionals pause. A small research security firm was silenced by threats of a patent infringement suit if it presented weaknesses in an RFID vendor's technology. One of the things that contributes to the security of organizations and individuals is the free and open exchange of information about hardware and software vulnerabilities. If we allow lawyers to suppress information about weaknesses and product that can result in security breaches, we will cripple our ability to protect against exploits. This is simply irresponsible corporate behavior. The full article, entitled ACLU Outrage, Fill in the Silence at Black Hat RFID Session, can be found at eWeek, and it was dated March 1, 2007. In a report released on February 28th, Andreas Clemente compares the effectiveness of the top 17 anti-malware products available today. Among other significant findings, Clemente's AV Comparatives team rated Microsoft dead last overall. In fact, Microsoft's OneCare was the only evaluated product to fail the AV Comparatives certification. The link to the full report as well as uh, links to the table of overall findings and the list of certifications can be found in the show notes. Also, AV Comparatives will be releasing additional uh, reports over the next year, and uh, comparative results on on on-demand detection of virus and malware will be released again on September 1st, and reports on retrospective proactive test results will be released on June 1st, and December 1st. Next, SPP raises its ugly head again. A few months ago, a failure in Microsoft's software protection platform service caused workstations to stop connecting to their company's networks. Well, SPP, SPP has caused additional problems for IT managers. According to an article by Greg Kaiser, which was in Computer World on 26 February, Microsoft has issued a patch intended to fix a Vista SPP bug that might cause your Windows workstation to be tagged as potentially pirated. The problem can occur if you install a device driver, install a program, run a new program, or remove a program. Although Microsoft responded by saying that this is a problem that rarely happens, it can still be an issue for that IT support engineer trying to get the payroll workstation back up. A link to the patch can be found in the show notes for this week's episode. With the upcoming release of the 2007 OWASP Top 10 list of web application vulnerabilities, it's a good idea to take another look at ways to secure browser-delivered applications. One of the biggest issues facing web developers is effective input validation. Malicious input can result in cross-site scripting or code injection vulnerabilities, 
but a manual approach to code checking can be a laborious and be prone to error. This is where fuzzing comes in. Fuzzing is a web application testing technique that uses a special program which takes input from a source of random data, which is called fuzz, and attaches those data to application inputs. If the application crashes, there are defects to fix. The value of fuzz testing is discussed in an article entitled Here Comes the Web Fuzz at Dark Reading by Kelly Jackson Higgins. Fuzz testing isn't a substitute for solid coding practices. It's just one more way to test applications to ensure a reasonable level of trust. If you decide to add fuzzing to your security toolbox, be sure to pick the right application. Many of them are for use in specific situations only. A list of fuzz testing applications can be found at a link in the show notes for this week. And the final news item has to do with some craziness in the Federal Republic of Germany. I like to think of myself as a reasonable person. I trust my government to do the right thing, most of the time. I take lightly the myriad of conspiracy theories that populate the Internet. But a recent article in the Register has started me thinking about the possibilities. Matthias Becker at Register.com writes about the German Federal Criminal Office requesting permission to use its own Trojans to obtain information from suspected terrorist computers. The article is entitled, German Cops and Spooks Prep Own Software, on 27 February 2007. Although the German Federal High Court instructed the police not to pursue this route, Minister of the Interior Wolfgang Schobel plans to pursue legislation, legislation of electronic spying. The fact that this is happening in Germany, an ocean away, isn't causing my rising sense of privacy erosion to slow in any way. Once governments anywhere on the globe decide that it's okay to plant software on my PC to capture personal information, my PC is no longer a safe tool for personal expression. What's to stop law enforcement in Germany or China from collecting information from individuals in any country they feel are a threat to their national interests? Yes, I know, we have concerns about our own government, However, we have recourses in our own courts and in our own journalistic prerogatives to deal with those issues. Surreptitious activities propagated by other countries would be much harder to resolve. It's important that we remain aware of these potential tactics by international law enforcement so we can take steps, both technically and politically, to defend our rights to personal privacy. And now we'll move on to our first feature topic, defending against kernel malware. Kernel malware, commonly known as rootkits, are malicious applications that run in the kernel of the OS with absolute rights to system resources. End-user devices infected with this type of application are open to undetectable processes that can steal data, collect personally identifiable information, and otherwise control the system regardless of the presence of any antivirus or personal firewall software. According to Kim O'Caslin at F-Secure, there are two types of kernel malware, infections in Microsoft Windows environments, full kernel and semi-kernel. Before jumping into a description of each, it's important to review how Windows memory is managed from a system pr pr protection perspective. Windows applications run in one of two modes, kernel or user. Kernel mode applications perform tasks such as accessing hardware resources on behalf of a user application. 
these applications typically have privileged access to system resources. Because of this, user applications are run in user mode to protect the integrity of the operating system. User mode applications, like word processors and internet browsers, are unable to directly access hardware or protected OS services. Rather, they must make calls to kernel libraries or drivers that ensure resource requests are executed on behalf of the user applications. This separation of processing tasks is enforced at the hardware level. Kernel malware circumvents this abstraction of privileges by running in kernel mode with direct access to all system services. In other words, it has complete control of the infected system. One attack vector is the installation of a malicious driver. Malware running in full kernel mode performs all tasks within the kernel layer. Although it might need a little help from the user to get installed, once operational, it performs its assigned tasks without further user intervention. Although it might need a little help from the user to get installed, once operational, it performs its assigned tasks without further user intervention. Semi-kernel mode malware runs in both user mode and kernel mode. One method of deployment consists of placing a DLL or EXE in user mode with access to a kernel mode driver. According to Caslin, there is a rise in popularity of kernel malware that coincides with the move of cybercriminals to a hacking-for-profit model. The advantage to criminals is that kernel malware is usually undetectable when using standard antivirus and anti-spyware applications. So how do you defend against malware in the kernel? Well, the first line of defense is denying local administrator access to PC users. If an attacker can't take advantage of user privileges to install kernel-based software, the level of effort required to compromise the PC might be high enough to encourage him to find a softer target. In addition, management should ensure user awareness of the dangers of clicking on unknown links and consenting to the installation of unauthorized software. Another important control is the implementation of a personal firewall on all workstations. This can help prevent self-propagating infections from spreading. It should be coupled with a strong patch management process. Patching helps eliminate software flaws that can be used to inject malicious kernel code. Also, consider prohibiting the installation of any unsigned drivers. Installation of malicious drivers is a favorite method of placing kernel malware on target systems. Our final feature topic has to do with protecting your data and is entitled Keep Your Eye on the Data. Keep your eye on the ball is a common admonition that, because of its broad application, spread far beyond the playing field. With a slight change, it equally applies to protecting information assets. In other words, keep your eye on the data. I find it a continuous struggle to help my peers in IT understand the importance of making data the primary object of security. Too often, atten attention quickly shifts to applications, operating systems, firewalls, and other things without a thorough understanding of how data moves and is stored within the network. It is only after the characteristics of an organization's sensitive data are identified and documented that the final work of securing them can begin. In, in a Computer Word article, Jay Kumar Vijayan lists five ways to mitigate risk associated with protecting company data. The article is entitled, Lessons from the DuPont Breach, Five Ways to Stop the Leaks, which appeared on 28 February 2007. 
Let's take a list, look at the list of risk mitigation methods in that article, and I'm going to give you my take on each. The first one is get a handle on the data. The first step is to understand where all data reside. Possible locations include database servers, disk arrays, local workstations, and mobile storage devices. Knowing where the data are helps in building a strategy for protection of data at rest. Once the data are located, they should be classified. Data classification helps direct security control efforts to the most sensitive and critical information first. I use a simple method using three classification levels, restricted, confidential, and public. The release of restricted information could cause substantial harm to the company, its employees, its customers, or its investors. The use of VLANs, IDS, IDP systems, access logging, and other proactive security activities are usually not optional to secure this data. Examples of restricted information include electronic protected health information, intellectual property, and personal information. Confidential data is less sensitive than restricted information, but its release could still cause harm to the company, its employees, its customers, or its investors. Although security controls are still required to protect this information, reasonableness should guide effort. Public information includes anything that doesn't fall into the other two classes. Examples include press releases and the annual reports of public companies. The next method is to monitor content in motion. If information sat quietly behind the protective barriers we construct, our jobs would be much easier. However, our users need the data to keep the company operational, so we must identify all paths information takes between storage, our users, and external entities. In addition to delivering information to user workstations, paths must include interfaces between applications, customer remote access over the internet, and the exchange of large amounts of data with vendor and customer organizations. It's a good idea to perform threat modeling on data in motion. An example of a threat modeling process can be found in A Practical Approach to Threat Modeling at adventuresinsecurity.com in the Security Papers page. A threat model of an interface, for example, helps identify potential vulnerabilities and how threats might exploit them. Armed with this information, it's much easier to design the proper security controls. The next method of mitigating risk on your data is to keep an eye on databases. Access to data should be through applications only. One exception to this rule is the direct database access required by database administrators. Even then, DBA access should be logged to a location to which only the security team has access. Communication between the application and the database should be accomplished with the use of a single network account. The account should be used only for that purpose and have a strong password known only to a very small number of support personnel or security personnel. The next method of mitigation is to limit user privileges. The principle of least privilege applies to all data that aren't classified as public. Users should be given access only to the data absolutely necessary to do their jobs. Network and application access controls should be governed by policy, standards, and guidelines with regular audits for compliance. The final method of mitigation is to cover user endpoint devices. Today's workplace is the scene of a plethora of devices that should make every security manager nervous. 
These devices include PDAs, MP3 players, thumb drives, USB hard drives, and smartphones. Each of these devices is capable of storing large amounts of company information. There are essentially two challenges associated with their use. What data is copied to them, and how that data, once copied, are secured. Steps an organization might take to controlling how information is copied to and protected on portable storage devices may include one or more of the following. Some of these items are more restrictive than others. So it's not if you have a company where USB and firewire access, for example, is necessary for your user productivity, then don't participate in the first activity, which is to completely disable USB and firewire ports. You could also encrypt sensitive data on portable and removable storage. Third, you could deploy a solution that provides granular control of USB and FireWire ports. You could also implement content monitoring that alerts when sensitive information is copied or moved. This provides some flexibility because instead of having to disable all the ports or to, granular, to provide granular management as to who can actually use those ports, you can monitor and alert when sensitive information is copied to and from USB or FireWire devices. You should also ensure that anti-malware and firewall technologies are installed on PDAs and smartphones that connect to the company network. And finally, enforce centrally managed policies that include password protection of handheld devices. For more information about these endpoint user controls, See Portable Storage Device Security and Wireless Handheld Device Security, which can be accessed through the show notes on through show note links on the podcast page at adventuresinsecurity.com. Well, that's it for this week. I hope I was able to help to make it just a little bit easier to meet your security challenges. Until next week, be careful what you click. <laughs>